0: <laughs> Thanks again for tuning into Revolutionary Lumpen Radio. In this episode, we truly investigate the past and present contradictions in two very similar but very different radical traditions. We are joined by our beloved comrade and friend of the pod who takes a form known as the Ministry of African Propaganda or Afro-Propaganda on various social networks and media platforms. What is Black Marxism and how does it differ from White Marxism? Why would some of the most progressive Black radicals create this distinction from our shared struggles? Are they shared struggles at all? Well, rather than asking myself hypothetical questions, we've prevented this beginning of a long body of work as I grow to understand the black radical tradition, at least as author Cedric Robinson does as we discuss their book, The Cause of Resurgence, and many of the criticisms of a historical materialism that ends at European Anglo borders, with no history before white man started pillaging it. Please subscribe on our podcast to get future episodes on whatever podcast player you're listening to, and support us on Patreon at patreon.com/slash lumpen podcast.
1: <laughs> but yeah, I think it'd be really interesting for people who want to, you know, get just get to know about Marxism beyond Europe, right? Or Marxism beyond the white working class, which really is the struggles of most of mankind.
0: Thanks again for tuning in to Revolutionary Lumpen Radio. In this episode, we're joined by a platform I find particularly interesting and extremely resourceful. They host a podcast, a YouTube channel, and produce art over Instagram that includes a lot of, well, mostly non-white radicals. I love what they do, so hopefully we can get into why you should too, as we touch on for the first time the differences between black and white Marxism with the Ministry of African Propaganda. Thanks very much for coming on the pod.
1: Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. I look forward to this.
0: Awesome. So shall I just call you minister? Minister.
1: Uh yeah, you can
0: call you can you can call me
1: just just ministry ministry. You're trying to get a lot of people on board. I know I know I know that sounds a bit weird. I guess referring phone to one person is.
0: I mean, I'm totally with you. That's why you're here. I want people to jump on board with you. Again, this is neglected stuff as I've increasingly found out. You know, Marxism doesn't just include Western bourgeois states, so we should look into how other people are struggling across the world because we're struggling this global phenomena together by the same goddamn forces.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, it's an it's an important fight, really. And if we really want to defeat capitalism, which is you know, which which has been rather for centuries a global system, and we need a global struggle, right? Like, we need global counter-hegemonic forces. We need to come together and unite our struggles in, in, in fighting a worldwide beast. I do find it odd that, you know, there are many Marxists out there today who only want the liberation of Europe, right? Who only want the liberation of of England or of, of the United States or of their particular communities. But in doing so, they're, they're misunderstanding the beast that we're fighting. This isn't the beast that is limited to one country. I I wish it was, right? I wish it was, but this is a global beast that we're tackling, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it's it's a damn shame and and we're privileged to have somebody like yourself on to explain these things in more detail because, you know, they're extremely complex in, in a way. As for people not wanting to liberate more than Europe, I'd say that there's many people in Europe or the United States who only want to liberate themselves through one policy, like healthcare or, you know, just mm. some specific. That's all they want. Never mind, you know, the liberation of them as a people or a nation or anything like that.
1: Yeah, definitely. I just want to add very quickly, like, on on that topic, healthcare, we hear that a lot in, in the UK, don't we? <laughs> like, protect the NHS or, or, you know, socialists, for whom socialism is is... A better NHS, right? But there's never any concern about the Zimbabwean or Filipino workers who, who, who form many of the nurses, right? Many of the nurses um, working in the, in the NHS. There's never any concern for them, or, or moreover, why they're here, right? Why they've been compelled to leave their countries and and travel thousands of miles for for, for better pay, right? For means to just live. I wish there was that concern that. Um, but it's good that you know there are comrades like yourself out there who have that concern and have that interest to go further and to um, to help liberate the world rather than just our local communities.
0: Thank you, comrade. And I'm very concerned. I'm very concerned that people don't appreciate those human beings who are doing incredible work to help other in- human beings, and this is why we need solidarity. Because like, if you're only listening to like Western bourgeois Marxism, then you're missing out on, on the reality.
1: Yeah, that's spot on. It's exactly that. It's exactly that. You're missing out on on so many realities, right? Like so many lived worlds. And and just to add to that, like the the fact that racialized struggles aren't aren't recognised because of that fact, right? Because they're they're non-white. It works in a similar way to how a lot of working-class struggles just aren't recognised because they don't have the verbiage or the word salads that that we see a lot, right? The word salads that we see a lot on Twitter, at least, and in a lot of contemporary Marxist circles, right? Like, they get that this is a working-class struggle. This is a people struggle. This is about the people. This isn't about, you know, like, gatekeeping in a way, right?
0: Definitely, because, again, this is something we're focused on, revolutionary and radio. So I've come here from, like... Everybody's talking about the motherfucking working class and that, while so many people, you know, are on benefits or they're out on the streets or they're in jail or they're forced to turn to sex work or they're just disabled and can't work or they're just, you know, suffering their own struggles through ableist and eugenic oppression. This isn't even excluded. This is how revolutionary Lumpen Radio come about because I was excluded from, like, so-called revolutionary organisations in the UK because I was, like, lumping background. So it was, like, ostracized. So, like, I've looked more into Marxism generally, and Marx was against the proletariat. So mm-hmm. we've pushed to give the proletariat like, a voice. You know, all these people have voice, and it is the most oppressed people in society. And Marxism failed to recognize them for revolutionary potential. So that's where we've constantly pushed forward, the revolutionary potential in Marxism within the lumpen proletariat, while just showing, you know, amazing people today who are struggling and why they're struggling, and why they're forced to do things that these Marxists look down on with their bourgeois moralities that we're trying to get across to fucking people because nobody else has told them this shit. So, uh, yeah, that comes into, again, why we need to support Marxists, you know, overall and just the people overall, not just working class. I mean, come on, people. <laughs> <laughs> like, wherever it is, the working class. That's where capitalism is. We want to annihilate that contradiction, basically. Um, and we'll get there through socialism, but we've got to get there through getting everyone on board. Mm. We've got to learn a lot to do that. You know, we've got to do a lot of fucking homework. You know, it's not going to be easy, but, you know, we've got to struggle and we are got to do this together.
1: Yeah, 100%. just to add very quickly to that, like, I think Fanon says a lot on that. Like, like Fanon, who's widely accepted as a phenomenal black Marxist, I'm pretty sure he said that it is the lumpen proletariat and not the groups traditionally identified as revolutionary actors of history. Rather, it is the lumpen proletariat who are the most revolutionary force in social change, and it is with, from, and among them. That we should be organizing. (laughs) But we have the opposite of that right now, don't we? Like, we have the opposite of that right now, which is a great shame. But it's great to, you know, it's great that people like yourself are are doing the good work that needs to be done in terms of reorienting our focus when it comes to the struggle.
0: Yeah, music to my ears, comrade. You're extremely well educated and informed for this. That's why I knew it was going to be such a great conversation. I'm just going to throw in one more spicy take. Kind of for a laugh before we move on for the pod. And I just want to say that Mao China was brought about by the peasant revolution, you know, was brought about by lumpen proletarians. They weren't the working class, you know, they were peasants. And that is the only lasting communist or socialist society today that is actually withstanding imperial oppression. You know, Cuba's there, but, you know, that's more seed socialism. China's maybe about to break seed socialism, maybe it has. I don't know. That's another subject.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's a great point. Mass line and, and Maoism in general, 100% is, yeah, you're right. Like, look at the result. You know, this is the only close to socialism state left standing in our world today. I just love it. For me, it's just, it, I just love it. I love it more than, you know, I've, I've got a lot of criticisms of the USSR. You know, particularly its pedagogical approach to informing the masses, right? Like it's almost like there was a an understanding where the the masses were like empty vessels who needed to be filled with logic and with understandings that came from the top down, right? That came from the party or the bureaucracy. Whereas in China under Mao, we see the opposite. You know, we see the masses privileged. We see the many. We see the people recognized as the primary drivers in history and and, you know rather than us teaching the the masses we the masses teach us right like this is the basic understanding that we should all as communists as real authentic communists operate with we are to be taught by the masses we are to be trained and to learn and, and to be organized with from and among the masses and that is the only democratic and authentic form of revolutionary organization in my view but yeah, we'll explore this later um, because this basically, this is essential to the black radical tradition. Like there's so many overlaps between the black radical tradition and, and, and mass line. There's so many overlaps in terms of them both being people oriented, them both being mass oriented. It's it's not about people at the top, you know, imposing uh, some sort of state sanctioned agenda onto the masses. Rather, it's about the masses organically developing their own leaders who, who truly represent them. Do you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, absolutely, I do. I mean, we heard that completely would serve the people, Akron, when they came on board, practicing that today as their base building dual power in A1. So I just want to add in one more supportive argument there for the USSR, but I think you'll appreciate it. And that is when we look at this basically great thinkers or whatever, where it's like Marx and Engels, Lenin, Stalin, Mao. That's the order we see them in. So when you talk about the USR just seeing people as this needs them to be filled, there was like the first genuine approach of like Marxism. So I think Mao's had that. He's looked at them a lot closer and he's learned from them because he's such a great thinker and studies and he's came to better conclusions. So I think that's just progress overall, isn't it? So And that's going to happen. Nothing's going to be perfect the right way. So all we can do is just get better. And that is a signifier that we can build a society that serves the people better than even China. You know, the progress is to be made. We've just got to start, again, just combating this cultural hegemony and bourgeois morality. Definitely.
1: Yeah, and I guess with, with dialectics, we can never really have an end goal, right? We'll never have, like, a perfect finish. I don't want to say product, <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, we'll never have a perfect finish polished ideology it will always be it should always be in constant development right it should always be in constantly in self-critique and developing through its own contradictions right like it, it should at least but yeah i guess sometimes we see some people especially with orthodox marxists i feel like sometimes they feel like their understanding is the finished product you know what i mean like they feel like their understanding is it and, and it just needs to be packaged and exported to all different contexts in the world. And that's, I guess, that's what black Marxism counters. This chauvinism amongst many orthodox Marxists who think they have the perfect finished ideology, and it just needs to be uniformly applied everywhere in the world, regardless of different, you know, cultural contexts, regardless of even different conditions, right? Like, they just ignore all of that and, and just, you know, copy and paste it everywhere. And and that's why we've seen that, that approach to organization. We've seen it fail. It, it's not been successful. You know, we've seen attempts to do that in the United States with CPUSA. And as a result, they failed to engage with, with black Americans, Like right? They failed to engage their unique condition and the struggles and contradictions that are affecting them. And interestingly, Lenin, he went past that. He went beyond that. I believe he said that black Americans should be recognized as a nation within a nation and he even wanted them to be at the revolutionary vanguard. But, you know, as we know, the USSR, it was never just the decision of one person, right? Like he had a a lot of um, opposing factions that fought otherwise, which is a shame, but, uh, but yeah.
0: As always, we start off a show with our usual background questions to get a sense of like who we're talking to here. So if you could just go into as much detail as you'd be willing to share on your background, politics or ideological tendency you might have before we jump into the subject matter, that would do a lot to give us context.
1: Yeah, definitely. So my my background, I'm currently, I'm a student, I'm doing research on the intellectual formation and development of black radicals in West Africa. The reason why I chose West Africa is because I'm from West Africa. I was born there, came to Britain when I was two and went back when I was 14. My background in terms of going back to West Africa is central to my political ideology because when I went back, that's when I saw, you know, true poverty, right? Like our family was always poor in England. We always lived in council housing. You know, we've been evicted like five, six times. Without free school meals I probably wouldn't have had lunch. You know, we've always been poor in England, but when I went to West Africa then I saw another level of poverty, right? Like I just I didn't even realise that you could that that, that existed, right? That, that that level of yeah.
0: Wow. Yeah. Like that that difference. Yeah,
1: definitely. I mean, you know, you see it on TV, right? Like, I feel like people in in England, we see it on TV. We're aware of poverty in Africa. We're aware of the starvation. But it doesn't really hit you until you see it in real life.
0: What exactly was you seeing? Just so people actually know it's not just a word. Like, what was it?
1: Yeah, I remember outside my house, there was... So so basically, I'd always go cycling, riding everywhere. Because the internet wasn't great. Being in Burkina Faso, that's where I was first. So the internet wasn't great, you know, so I was just out and about, like cycling, doing what teenagers do, I guess. And outside our house, there was this this really poor family with four kids, all boys. The youngest couldn't have been older than 10. Sorry, the oldest couldn't have been older than 10. The youngest was about three or four. And they were all working every single day, working Um, outside of their house, which is really that their, their entire house was probably smaller than my room in our council flat, right? It's like it's not even a house you wouldn't you wouldn't call it a house and you know all four boys are working every single day repairing bikes so you know if you had a hole in your tire they could fix it for it was 100 francs west african francs which i think is like maybe like 20p i don't know
0: are those the same francs that get shipped from france to west africa
1: yep exactly it's controlled it's a colonial currency that nations like Burkina Faso had to adopt as a precondition for independence. And only until recently, I believe literally a few years ago, they were required to deposit half of their gold reserves in the central bank in Paris. So this is is a way of economic control. They had political independence, but no economic freedom because they literally had half their gold in France. So if they wanted to nationalize any of their industries or parts of their economy, you know what the consequence would have been, right? It, it was holding their economy hostage. Um, but yeah, if I Google uh, 100 West African francs in pounds, just very quickly, 13 pence. Yeah, so for 13 pence, they would repair the tires of your bicycle or whatever. And again, like these are children, <laughs> you know, children, like actual children who should be in school, right? Children who should be in nursery, children who should not be fucking working. <laughs> That's the very. Uh, so they're
0: not learning how to read or write.
1: No way, no way. They, every day they were out there repairing bikes, like every single day. Still doing that. Still probably doing that. And I know that their mother used to sell peanuts on on the side. Like if cars drive by, they could stop on the side of the road and she'd sell them peanuts. But yeah, that, that's them. You know that their life predecided for them simply because of the, the environment that they were born into, a, a racially colonized country that, that is still colonized today. And, and it is their labor that feeds the economy of, of France and Europe in general, right? Burkina Faso has a lot of multinational firms from France, as well as Canada, who use that kind of labor. Um, not those specific kids, but I know that there were kids working in mines, right? Kids working in mines in Burkina Faso today in our world, making profits. For these multinational firms headquartered in Paris, headquartered in Toronto, headquartered in, you know, wherever in the global north. And that's really fueled the main thing that I'm focused on in terms of praxis. I'm trying to push for due diligence laws in global supply chains in the global north. So forcing companies that are headquartered in France, Germany, England, uh, America, forcing these companies to make sure that there are no... Human rights abuses and exploitation in their supply chains and no child slaves, because those kids who lived outside of my house, they were child slaves, right? The kids who were in mines, they were child slaves too, right? No child can consent to working, let alone working for pennies, just to live, just to starve, just to to have food, the basic necessities. And it's a great shame that, that, you know, Europe, the so-called home of civilization, the home of human rights, equality, justice, fairness, all of these things, right, that which which, which Europe loves to boast about. Europe is this home of all of these things, yet its companies do these horrible things aboard, right? Its companies have literal child slaves. Its companies ruthlessly and brutally continue to exploit the global south today and this isn't a secret like everyone knows about sweatshops right we all know about sweatshops we all know that kids in in africa and south asia you know work we we all know this yet somehow you know we, we don't have the laws preventing this and it's just it's a bit mad to me that in 2022 we still don't have legislation against it
2: But that expropriation of the third world has been going on for 400 years brings us to another revelation, namely that the third world is not poor. You don't go to poor countries to make money. There are very few poor countries in this world. Most countries are rich. The Philippines are rich. Brazil is rich. Mexico is rich. Chile is rich only the people are poor but there's billions to be made there to be carved out and to be taken there's been billions for 400 years the capitalist european and north american powers have carved out and taken the timber the flax the hemp the cocoa the rum the tin the copper the iron the rubber the bauxite The slaves and the cheap labor, they have taken out of these countries. These countries are not underdeveloped. They're overexploited.
0: It leads us all to the same fucking conclusion time and time again. It's because of racism. They don't care because of racism. They dehumanize these human beings. It's just fucking Africans, you know what I mean? They dehumanize them and that's how these things go on, that's how genocides take place, that's how it goes on, and that's why we've got to constantly fight racism if we're ever going to fight imperialism. When I say, you know, these bourgeois Marxists, you know, I might slightly be saying you're fucking racist as Mm -hmm. well because you aren't looking at fucking the amazing work that, like, black radicals have done or listening to them. You're just constantly trying to fucking all intellectually masturbate with with each other and, and it's disgusting because them fucking kids are out there starving, you know what I mean? And I participate in fucking internationalism where I can. You know, I'll do fucking Palestinian action because those weapons are coming from fucking the UK, literally being used and tested on the fucking captive civilian population of Palestine or to facilitate a fucking genocide and fucking apartheid. So how many Marxists... In France, are fucking mad that you know, Franks are going to fucking these colonies.
1: You're, you're spot on with everything that you said there. I think it points to two things. The first thing being that you're right, like they've accepted that, that Africans and, you know, South Asians, people who aren't white are inferior to them, right? That they've accepted this and that's why, you know, they, they don't care about Palestine, right? That's why they don't care about, refugees drowning in the mediterranean people accept this it's it's you're right it's accepted it it is something that they don't they don't care to challenge and it's sad because as marxists you know we should be aware of the base and and, and superstructure we should be aware of the fact that bourgeois dictatorship has with it bourgeois cultures laws understandings right uh superstructural um understandings that that justify bourgeois rule in the base but instead of you know instead of understanding that their indifference to, to African pain and to South Asian exploitation is a part of that superstructure, right? Instead of critically recognising that they accept it, they accept it and in their solutions they they reproduce it. And I remember having <laughs> Twitter beef with someone where you know I said to them like okay, it's cool having a socialist state in, in Britain, that's what I want too, right? As, as, as someone who's got ties to Britain too I would absolutely love to have socialism here, but how can we justify that if, if it is built on the exploitation of the global south if it is if it continues to be maintained by child slaves in the global south. Is this the vision of Marx, right? Is this really the vision of Marx to have socialist states in Europe underpinned and, and maintained by child slaves in the global south? Because if that's the Marxist vision, then count me out, right? Because I, I want none of that. You know, but the truth is, you know, this isn't the Marxist vision, right? Many people who have come after Marx have contributed more to Marxism around the globe than Marx himself, you could argue, one being Mao Zedong in China, right? Uh, Ho Chi Minh in Vietnam. You know, we can point to a range of global South or third world Marxists who have done more in reality rather than just in theory for Marxism than any other global North, you know, Western European socialist contemporary or thinker. So that's what I really want to focus on, I guess, the, you know, the black Marxist thinkers who have evolved Marxism in a way, right? Who have innovated it and extended it to their unique conditions so that it, it's truly radical and truly humanist in its end goals.
0: Yeah. Excellent. Well said, I uh, just want to give context, uh, I sometimes do this, give like historical context, like how this episode came about, um, just because since my episode, since our last episode with comment Jabia, the ghost of George Jackson, like. I think that I've really just started to only understand, like, a fraction of what I need to learn about colonialism and decolonialism in order to support a free humanity. And then I think I found you not long after, you know, the episode got released through Malcolm X Movement on Twitter. Surprise, surprise. Like, honestly, I find amazing comrades through them. And then, like, I saw one of your tweets and I followed your... And I started to see, like, your social commentary on things and, like, your thoughts, and I was, like, properly vibing with them. All the posts you shared was about, like, basically colonialism or, like, black Marxism or something in, like, one way, shape or form. Again, like, as an internationalist myself, like, if I see somebody who's, like, oppressed telling me somebody with privilege that, like, I need to know this or, like, you need us to know it or I can pick up on that, like, I'm going to try and learn. But then I saw one of your tweets and it said while the fight of Europe's Marxists was against bourgeois structures of class exploitation black Marxists had an additional and perhaps a primary fight against the white bourgeois structures and superstructures that constituted racial, capitalist imperial domination worldwide. And I was like whoa this is almost like a holy bible kind of shit is like exactly what i needed in my life do you know what i mean it was like (laughs) and what is this resource and it was also around the same time that i was about to dive into the book black marxism which i actually think i found through malcolm x movement surprise surprise (laughs) um (laughs) <laughs> so like looking at with all these things taking, a, taking place you know looking at your social media and seeing this tweet I think wow this is like exactly what I need to understand because like I've never been exposed to this shit I'm telling you deadly serious I've never been exposed to this thought kind of shit from like being a socialist and revolutionary for like over 10 years and like a lot of genuine like Marxist study within that and it was looking correct to me so I was like surprised But now we're here together so can i humbly ask you if you do or does your ideology so to speak come from the position that black and white marxist struggle differs or that european marxism is oppressive against even black marxists could this be the case
1: wow great question great question before I dive into it, I would I would just also say Malcolm X Movement, yeah, definitely amazing, amazing resource, you know, follow on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, everything. I've learned a lot myself from, from um, MXM as well. But yeah, in regards to this question, great question. I would say, I'd say both, right? I'd say that both black and white Marxist struggles differ in that, you know, they, they engage different life worlds, different struggles, different conditions, different contradictions. Right, different, just different set of phenomena that then, uh, domination, right, different things that are being dealt with and engaged, but also they don't differ in that both struggles are united, right? Like you can't fully defeat one without the other. You cannot have liberation for the white working class without liberation for the black underclass, and vice versa. Right, both, both struggles are, are linked. I'll get into this. So, first off, black Marxism is is like a Bible to me right now. <laughs> like, that's the text that I would recommend to everyone and anyone to read.
0: <laughs> yeah, we're on the same page. We're going yeah. on, so it's into No, no, it. You're, it, it is like a,
1: it's biblical. It is biblical if you care about ending exploitation, full stop, right? In the text, the first couple of, uh, the first section is on European history, right? And when I first read this, I thought,
2: huh?
1: I'm, I'm learning about black Marxism." Well, I thought this was black Marxism. you know, am I'm reading about European history. And it is only after I I, I finished reading the book and watched a few different lectures on it to really understand it, all available on YouTube, that I realized the reason why it dives firstly into European history and thus, you know, white working class struggles is that it seeks to show that racialism or racism, the idea of having race, predates capitalism, right? So a lot of orthodox Marxists will say that racism was created in the superstructure by capitalism to justify the exploitation of racialized proletarian populations. You know, Cedric Robinson in Black Marxism argues the opposite. He says that racialism actually clearly predates capitalism and he points towards uh, the racialization of labor, or rather like pools of labor within Europe by Europe's free bourgeois forces. So he points to the Irish, uh, he points to the Slavs or, you know, the, the Roma as populations native to europe within europe that have been racialized by europe in order to exploit their labor with the irish uh, this is very clear right like if you're a radical in england then you should know right you should know or recognize how the irish have been particularly and, and, and brutally racialized in order to be exploited by england strangely enough this isn't actually true of all english radicals there are a lot of english socialists out there who don't give a fuck about the Irish or, or the Irish struggles, even though you'd think that the, the two are united, right? English working class struggles and Irish working class struggles are so united that it, it it's kind of mad to me to, to even think that you can separate the two. But, you know, oddly enough, there are people out there who, who do that. And in the same way that they separate European working class struggles from the working class struggles of the rest of the world, Robinson says, well, he shows us that throughout the book that the two struggles are linked in many ways. Robinson shows us how when analyzing the exploitation of Europe's working class, you can't do it without also looking at the non-European underclasses that created the primary products that would then be fed into Europe towards uh, working classes to manufacture into stuff. So for example, let's take cotton, right? Marx and a lot of Marxian theorists will look at the exploitation of europe's working class in cotton mills, for example, during the Napoleonic Wars, there was a point where there were more British soldiers stationed in workhouses in England in the north of England particularly than there were British soldiers uh, in active battlefields right which, which that illustrates how even in the middle of an imperial war between you know England and France Britain and France sorry two big empires, there was still a heavy emphasis on you know, militarily oppressing the working classes, right? Making sure that they kept working around the clock, and you know, there was no time to unionize, no time to organize and fight against their own exploitation. And, and and the point of that is to to show how you know we can look at the working classes of Europe, right? We can look at those cotton mill workers, we can look at England's working class and how they were exploited in factories, sure. But if we don't look at you know the cotton that was fed into those factories, or the gold that was fed into those factories, or the silver, or the copper, or the coal that was fed into those factories, right? And if we don't look at the enslaved labor that produced those materials, then we're not really liberating everyone in this process, are we, right? We're only liberating people who are a bit down in the production chain. To truly liberate everyone from the exploitive production chain of, of, of capitalism, we need to start at the very bottom, we need to start amongst the primary producers, we need to start amongst the people who are making the cotton, who are making, who are mining the gold, the people who are on plantations, right? Um, That's what a lot of Marxist theorists miss, um, partially because they are racist, but also because Marx's own contributions were blind to that. It it was blind in that, you know, if you look at Marx's writings on India, for example, marx justifies colonization in india because it brings indian society closer to socialism right in his eyes likewise engels and his writings on algeria uses a lot of just racist descriptions you know describing them as a savage and and backwards and you know both of them in describing the means of production outside of europe you know vaguely referred to in asia they call it the asiatic mode of production which is just what does that mean right? <laughs> like this is a vague term that means
0: when mean you say it's it's a bunch of Asians, they're not y2 kids yeah,
1: right right and, and and it means it actually means absolutely nothing. and so you know because of all these flaws in Marx and you know before I,
0: it means n- not as, yeah yeah radical.
1: yeah, and like to be fair to Marx like the, you know there are a lot of positives uh, topic of you know the mature conditions affecting people outside of Europe, for example. He has a very famous quote in which he says, without slavery, you have no cotton. Without cotton, you have no modern industry. It is slavery that gave the colonies their value. It is the colonies that created world trade. And it is world trade that is the precondition of large-scale industry. Thus, slavery is an economic category of the greatest importance. Right. So clearly in this quote, he recognizes what we've just said, right, that you need to start at the very bottom of the production chain. You need to start with the raw materials that are, that are produced by enslaved peoples, right? That That's where our analysis really needs to start if we are to properly liberate all workers around the globe from the, the stranglehold of capitalism. But even though he recognizes it, it's really just that, right? He he doesn't really expand a lot further on this. He doesn't mention the Haitian Revolution, for example, which you know happened 50 years before his birth. And today, the Haitian Revolution is still the only successful example of the slave revolt in all of human history. Right? It's almost as if
0: who you talking about, Marx?
1: Yeah, 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 Marx. I'm pretty sure
0: Marx has uh, never referred to the slave rebellion in Haiti ever. Marx and Marx and Engels. I might have to Google it just in just in case. Marx and Engels. Whoa. No, I mean it's it's not surprising. Again, like we said in the Ghost of George Jackson episode, we touch on how George Jackson even he repeating a lot of the black panthers and you know black marxists aren't on marxist.org so we would ask him why that is and then um, you know again and you know what um, Comrade jabria's answer was he says that you know marxist.org just probably even people who come from a more bourgeois liberal background, <laughs> and like it's true, you know these Marxists in the imperial court need to realize that we're listening to the wrong people, you know yeah. it's it's that simple we're supporting people who are just recycling you know white Marxist. History when we should be listening to the oppressed history that is being neglected to us and a lot of it to be fair is because it happens in places where they speak a whole other language Mm. to be fair so you know it takes time to translate these things but we live in an information era. i'm starting to think there's an excuse now to start looking to identify that there is a black marxism and that says a lot about contemporary marxism today
1: yeah no definitely i think yeah, two points on that. Like firstly, like even in in the United States, you know, or or in England as well, we have black I'm going to call them undercultures or, or subcultures, not because they are that intrinsically, but rather they've been relegated there, right? They've been pushed down there. They've been they've been, you know what I mean, they've been criminalized by the establishment and we see it in the UK in terms of grime, right? Like <laughs> they want to blame grime for everything, right? Grime is responsible for crime, it's responsible for drugs, it's responsible for all of the ills of England, if you're, if you're to read the Daily Mail and the Sun, right? And in the United States, people like Huey Newton, people like the Black Panthers, people like even Tupac, right? Criminalized, criminalized, targeted, persecuted by the white liberal establishment because what they are saying, their cultural expressions aren't just that, right? This isn't just like a black culture that is being criminalized by a white society. Rather, their cultural productions are, are anti-capitalist. They are anti-imperialist. They are a challenge to the establishment, because within it, it's contained a lot of truths that people think we can only exclusively get from Marxists, right? Or we can only exclusively get from bourgeois academic Marxist theorists. But this, this is the exact opposite. And this is what Cedric Robinson points to when he elaborates on the Black radical tradition. The Black radical tradition is simply the Black masses, right? the revolutionary Black masses who... Formed many slave revolutions throughout the Americas. For example, the Quilombos dos Palmares in mm-hmm. Brazil, the various maroon communities of, you know, Jamaica, Mexico, Cuba, various slave rebellions in the United States before the Civil War, such as Nat Turner's Rebellion, Denmark Vesey. This is all the the Black radical tradition, right? Because in in all of these these examples, they didn't need a trained Marxist, professional revolutionary to come and. Tell them, hey, you're slaves. You should probably, you know, get rid of the chains on on the feet. No, they didn't need that. They didn't need a leader. They didn't need some professional petty bourgeois revolutionary to do revolution for them. Rather, they did it themselves, right? Because history is not the result of individuals, right? History is not driven by a battle of ideas, right? Rather, the black radical tradition shows us uh, so that history was driven by the masses. And, and in terms of black history, at least black revolutionary history was driven by the masses. And that was the case in Haiti, right? That was a revolution of the masses. And that's also the case in anti, throughout anti-colonial Africa, right? In Guinea-Bissau, in Mozambique, in Angola, in South Africa, too, against apartheid, right? Like, they jailed Mandela, they killed Steve Bicker, but they couldn't kill the movement because the, the movement did not require trained professional revolutionaries. It did not require individuals. These were mass movements, mass radical movements standing against racial capitalism. And what he distinguishes as racial capitalism is what we mentioned earlier, right? About how Europe racialized its own communities. How Europe exaggerated the differences within its own internal populations, right? So whether it was a north south divide or the Irish or the Romani or or, or, or you know Jewish people too, right? Europe would exaggerate these differences within its own internal population in order to exclude and exploit them and justify particular social formations. And then once Europe did this, it then exported this to the rest of the world. It exported this through colonialism. It did to the world what it did to itself first. That's the key distinction that he makes with racialism predating capitalism. Rather than, you know, race being a a manufactured product used to justify capitalism, race predates capitalism racial exploitation is what came first and it developed with and along alongside capitalism to become what capitalism is right so just to summarize the point he's making is that capitalism isn't non-racial right capitalism is racial and it always has been racial racial capitalism is what capitalism actually is and we see that europe racially cap colonized its own populations and, and then they did it to the rest of the world. But it's just unfortunate that a lot of Marxists today think that capitalism is non-racial and that actually people like Mao, people like black Marxists like Fanon or, you know, I may say they are the ones who are actively like adding a racial component to capitalism when that isn't the case. Capitalism has always been racial. It's just that orthodox Marxists are just blind to race as a, a dynamic of oppression.
0: Yeah, well said, Conrad, I think you've just added the second level of inquiry in my mind that requires deep investigation. The first one being racism existed before capitalism. Mm. That's one thing that's worthy of deep study.
1: Yeah. Yep.
0: Thank you for those contributions. I'm seriously gonna take this away. My listeners aren't gonna have a choice. They're gonna to have to listen to more of this from other guests and once I've read more i'm going to try and do my best to synthesize these thoughts with people and how i think people should consider you know each other in the class struggle so i'll just ask you a question about black and white marxism how they differ presently but as for the future would it appear to you that we have to try and blend these lines of thoughts together if white imperial core marxism has previously failed to synthesize the non-European capitalist struggle?
1: um, Yeah, yeah, no, it's a good question as well. I think, I think it has to, it has to. The two have to, white Marxists need to stop being white Marxists, you know, and <laughs> yeah. recognize that, right? Like, it, it, like, it's not a battle against capitalism, right? It's a battle against racial capitalism. They have to recognize it if they want to properly defeat it. This is just the truth that they need to come to, otherwise it's just going to be failure. I'd point to three things. I'd point to one. Marx was a revolutionary humanist, right? Marx was a revolutionary humanist. Engels was a revolutionary humanist. Lenin was a revolutionary humanist. You know, all of these great Marxian theorists that imperial core bougie Marxists love to, you know, quote and stand, they are revolutionary humanists. And so they are betraying their cause, right? They are betraying the spirit of Marx, by, You know, by being chauvinists like this and not giving... A rat's us about you know working class struggles around the globe, right? They are betraying that revolutionary humanist ethos, and I feel like a lot of people forget that. Like we are trying to, as Fanon says, create a new man, right? A, a new society, new mankind that is free of of this parasitic disease that is capitalism and bourgeois exploitation, right? This is our end goal. This is what we want at the end. Societies that are free of exploitation and it's only rational, right? Like Marxism itself is, is is a rational, a rationalist cause, right? Like it makes sense to socialize and collectivize, you know, the means of production and, and you know, ensure that the fruits of all of our labor well and truly go towards the many, right? And, and, and the needs of the many. And, and it is through this process that human progress can be, you know, greatly sped up, right? It doesn't make sense to have a world in which, Europe, which is 15% of the glo- glo- global population, right? It doesn't make sense to have this world where 15% of the global population enjoy all all the fruits of, of world labor. Right? It makes no sense. It makes no sense to also, um, and this is where I'll get into the decolonial and post-colonial project. It doesn't make sense to have education centralized in Europe. Because that that's how things currently are, right? Because of colonialism, because of imperialism, because Europe went out to the rest of the world and imposed its own logics and processes of racialization upon others, it also imposed its own epistemologies and cosmologies, right? It imposed its own ways of being and ways of living and ways of just doing society, right? Ways of having social and economic organization. Europe imposed that upon everywhere in the world. And in doing so, it imposed a system where the energies, it's like the energy of everywhere in the world all gets sucked into Europe, or all, all get sucked up into the imperial core, right, into the global north. And as a result, this doesn't just happen in, in terms of money, but also education, right? All the minds of the global south are drained up into the global north. That's why I came to Britain, right? Because my dad, he studied in Senegal, and he was able to get a job in Britain. And, you know, when I went back to Bikini, first Bikini Faso and then Senegal, I noticed that the point of going to school right to be successful in, in school was to be able to go and study at university in europe that that's how it is in africa uh, like in this day that is what success is deemed from our education systems and, and this is bad for obvious reasons right it means the best and the brightest what reasons? But, uh, super reasons? super structural reasons I, as in like these countries have not just been literally shaped by colonial powers, right? All of Africa's, not all, but most of Africa's nations don't exist, or they don't exist prior to colonialism. Like Senegal, for example, which is where I'm from, it did not exist until the French came along. So not only has have we been literally and structurally shaped by Europe in terms of our countries, its names, its borders, but we've been super structurally shaped by Europe, right? In regards to... French right now is, is the most spoken language in Senegal, right? In twenty twenty two. It's the most spoken language in Mali. So it's the official language in Niger, it's the official language of Burkina Faso, it's the language of government, the language of business, the language of education. This does not make sense. That's what's explored in decolonizing the mind, right? The fact that we have to learn these European understandings of language of and, and, and of life in general means that
0: or and 14p a day repairing the fucking tire yeah, if you're looking exactly
1: it, it, it's one or the other right it's one or the other you either you know do do labor intensive jobs right cutting down trees repairing tires farming ground nuts again all of the spoils of this labor intensive labor uh labor intensive yeah labor intensive work get transferred to the global north as well right like a lot of materials cut in the global south are shipped off to the global north for example fruit right if you go to any shop in, in in the global north you've got bananas you've got pineapples you've got mangoes you've got all of these fruits that aren't grown in the global north because there's just not the climate for it but the inverse doesn't happen right like global south countries don't have fruits and produce from the global north that are largely enjoyed by that their populations sorry i'm confusing myself but the point i'm trying to make is that global south nations are not just structurally shaped but also super structurally shaped by the global north to the point where it's not just our money going over over to the global north it's not just our fruits going to the global north it's our minds too the best and brightest of our minds are going to the global north and this does not make sense it does not make sense to privilege europe it does not make sense to privilege that
0: i'm interrupting again sorry but there's a way for this what is it like the
1: is it brain drain?
0: Brain drain, yeah, that's it. Yeah,
1: yeah. And, and it also stops our own development, right? Because if we don't have our best and brightest, how are we tend <laughs> to develop as countries? I mean, we, you, you see how totalizing the process of colonial exploitation is. right? It's in every facet, every department of life. And there's a quote from um, Thomas Sankra in which he, he condemns this. He says, that uh, to be successful in, in African minds is to live like the richest of the Frenchmen. Right. And he said that in the eighties, and this is still true today. His country, Burkina Faso, w- which I lived in is among the poorest countries in the world. It is, I believe in the bottom five poorest countries in the world. And interestingly, when Thomas Sanko was in power, he managed to get literacy rates.
0: I was just thinking of him. Like, literally. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh, he's a legend, man. <laughs> like, oh, I love him so much. He's literally one of my heroes. But when he was in power, you know, as you probably already know, like he increased literacy rates astronomically. He reduced the salary of politicians in line with the national average. He managed to get the country entirely aid independent, right? Like they didn't need a penny of Western aid. It was self-sustaining, you know, there was enough food for everyone. It was so promising. So promising until, you know, as you probably already know, he was removed by a French back coup and replaced with a neocolonial dictator, Blaise Kampowery, who ruled for the next 30 years. And and what is the result of it, right? What was the result of Blaise Compaore's French-backed rule? What was the result of capitalism in Bikina Faso? The country being the fifth poorest in the world, right? A place where I walked out of my door and I see kids repairing tires. Like, is is this the point? Is this the purpose of capitalism? I'd say that it is in the global South. Like, that's exactly what it wants. It wants to, to suck the life and the soul out of our land, our labor, our mineral wealth, and redirect everything back up to the global north as it has always done for the past 500 years. And yeah, I guess that that just describes the the unique struggle that people in the global south are facing, that people in the global north don't always recognize. And I mention this because, again, Europe is only 15% of the world. This system is not going to maintain itself. This will not continue forever, right? This will not continue beyond the next century. Eventually, there will be a revolution. There will be a revolution in Africa. I hope so, inshallah. There will be a revolution in Africa that will undo this wicked system of of, of exploitation. And honestly, right now, Europe has a chance to avoid that by doing the right thing. Right, By doing the right thing and by stopping these patterns and and relations of of exploitation, by putting an end to neocolonialism by putting by, by an end to um, you know, the child slaves that, that it uses. Uh, but Europe doesn't care to do that, right? European capitalists won't do that. European liberals don't care about that. And right now, it seems like European Marxists also don't care about this. And yeah, I, I guess that's why I'm saying that the, um, the struggles of, of, of white Marxists and black Marxists have to be intertwined, because if we are to reach the end goal of revolutionary humanism, we need everyone to be free. And liberated. We need everyone to be beyond these structures of exploitation. Anything else is a betrayal of the spirit of
0: Marx. So, so beautifully said. I love that taking the position that anybody not standing for revolutionary humanism is betraying Marx. And Marx obviously saying that communism is the start of human history. I think just as an observation, which may be funny to people. Is I just feel like Marx through a lot of his earlier life, I like wrote a lot about like the human condition and like society and nature and shit. He loved all that and it just seemed like he got to a point where he realised he had to fucking pay for things to survive and just fucking wrote about how shit that was ever since. Yeah. So, <laughs> what about you? What about your work specifically? Does your platform target Marxists or decolonialists? Pan-Africans, black, white people? And why is it important to work that way to you?
1: Um, So it it kind of targets all of them because I guess one thing I'm really privileged is the black radical tradition because, you know, the black radical tradition was, was was behind the end of slavery in America as well as, you know, elsewhere in the new world. The black radical tradition was behind the end of direct colonialism. It was behind the end of apartheid. You know, the Black radical tradition is is what I I, I privilege, because it is the force that has consistently, throughout the centuries, fought against racial capitalism. It has consistently fought against empire and imperialism. And as we know, empire also, you know, uh, exploited the white working class too, right? Whilst the Black radical tradition fought against the enslavement and, and racial exploitation of Black people in doing so, they were also contributing to the the fight of the white working class against their own bourgeois oppressors right so this is a truly revolutionary humanist project and as a result it's transdisciplinary right it's not it's not just marxism it's not just pan-africanism it's it's not just decoloniality too it's kind of like a a mix of it all um because it incorporates parts of it all but also because those things like marxism decoloniality pan-africanism they don't individually necessarily capture the black radical tradition in its entirety, Marxism, especially as we've just discussed right, like orthodox Marxism <laughs> like towards Asia, it sees it all as the Asiatic mode of production, like if it's that generalizing and vague towards Asia, you know you can imagine how how it is towards Africa again, the fact that Marx you know didn't ever you know properly analyze the Asian Revolution shows you that Marxism as a theoretical framework doesn't fit the Black radical tradition. It doesn't properly engage it. And, uh, you know, this isn't unique to the Black radical tradition, right? Like Mao with Mass Line or Mao with Izuv in general, recognized that, you know, Marxism, Marxism-Leninism had to be tweaked, right? It had to be tweaked. It had to be slightly changed here and there. It had to be adapted, and he, he innovated it. And the Black radical tradition, or rather, Black Marxism, does that with the Black radical tradition, right? It understands it through Marxist frameworks, but also through you know decolonial frameworks, you know making tweaks here and there, right? Like making things fit where they can, but where it can't fit, you know, it looks at something else, like another perhaps another framework or another understanding or or, or theory or whatever that can perhaps fit better or, or more efficiently or help us understand something more effectively. And so that's why it's transdisciplinary. It's it's kind of impossible to to use just one school of thought or one theoretical framework to get across that revolutionary humanist message that that, that we want to spread. But yeah, just to summarise, like um, my work, what I do is, yeah, it, it's basically that, it's transdisciplinary, it's, it, it's whatever's most relevant to what I'm engaging with. You know, sometimes you do need to perhaps focus strongly on class and on you know economic exploitation, but some other times... That same approach, perhaps, wouldn't be good it It would serve to obscure more than it would reveal about things right and that's why we've got to, we've got to use everything we've got to use all all of these tools that are at our disposal we've got to combine things we've got to mix and match in order to get the the most effective result or to get our message across as best as we can so that's why i I don't use any particular label, but if I had to choose one, then it would be it would probably be Pan-African because Pan-Africanism has always consistently you know, been based on the Black radical tradition and as such it has always been against racial capitalism, against imperialism, against empire um, and, and, and that's what
0: I stand for. Thank you very much for that answer, Comrade and yeah, it makes perfect, absolute sense. Just to reiterate everybody should go and follow you just to go and check out the work that you do if you haven't already but if if we're looking uh you know about the struggle against humanity as revolutionary humanists then it only makes sense to if we've acknowledged that marxism is like uh you know the third year revolution against the class toxic society and what we're looking at is something that maybe is an African issue or an European issue, then maybe Marxism isn't the best scientific theory to base your practice on. You might need to have a couple of other equations in there from another different subjects and maybe a couple of the book on Pan-Africanism as well because, you know, Marxism doesn't encompass everything. I think that as... I am a Marxist. I consider it my duty to present pan-Africanism. The stance of imperial core Marxism is actually oppressive against non-European Marxists on the basis that it doesn't considered the struggle (laughs) taking place whatsoever. I've always criticised Marxist practice in the imperial core. That's no surprise to people. So that statement shouldn't be a surprise either because I want world peace (laughs) and people are standing in the way with the fucking and and, and like being and and having the wrong thoughts because they haven't got the right information. So yeah, it comes back to my duty to present this to Western white Marxists. That's what I'm trying to do. And we've got that platform. That's why we're doing this. It's to share this around the imperial court, tell people, you don't have to be black to understand why people are having to be Pan-Africans. But if we understand Pan-Africanism or we understand struggles in specific regions or, you know, uh, again, I don't even know what I'm talking about. But if I did know what I was talking about, then we could, as imperial core marxist incorporate it maybe into a practice or into a learning and so there who who knows we could maybe work together in some way shape or form or even counter cultural hegemony and just and just not be in hindrance or complicit
1: yeah like not 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 make it harder you know for for, for others in, in their struggles and i think you know, just just going back to what you you know your work with with Palestine Action, I think yeah, it's already uh, that, that's you know more more than can be said of of most um, of most you know English Marxists that I've met. You know, I think it's already a great start, and I think that honestly, one thing I put up to people is that if you're working class, right, and you're working in a a weapons manufacture like a weapons factory, right, if we liberate you. In terms of you know making sure that the the surplus value of your labor and reinvested into your community, that's great, right? But it's still a fucking weapons factory, you know. You're still manufacturing weapons to be used elsewhere to to oppress other people, right? Like that's what I try to put up to people. Like, can you be liberated? And is it is it true revolution? Is it truly? Are we truly bringing about equality if we're considering people working at, like, you know, harmful things like weapons manufa- weapons factories, if we're considering them to be exploited and oppressed and we liberate them, sure, like, you know, we could do that, but then is, should that be the end? You know what I mean? Like, they, they have to think about what the consequences that, that these things have aboard, right? And I, I think it's great that, you know, you're involved in a group that, that does engage that and, and actively tries to put an end to that. But yeah, I guess I'd like to see more, more English radicals consider that, or, or do this, you know, do stuff along the same lines, do work that not only benefits the English working class, but also working classes abroad. Because yeah, once again, our struggles are united. Yeah, there was a quote I wanted to add, I forgot. It might sound a bit off topic, so I forgot what, what I wanted to add it on to. But there was a quote from Aimé Cézanne, which he says, Marx is great, but we need to complete Marx. In the same way that black radical theorists innovate and, and complete Marx by adapting it to their unique condition, and which is you know, exactly what Mao did in China as well. I feel like a lot of Marxist thinkers in the West, both white and black, need to innovate Marx in terms of adapting it to the 21st century, right? Like we're living in a, as you said earlier, the information age. We've got new context, new conditions, new contradictions, new struggles that, you know, are adequately engaged with by what Marx and Engels left behind, right? Like we need to innovate it, don't we? We can't just blindly adapt or rather blindly copy and paste what Marx wrote 150 years ago. to to our current situation. No, we have to adapt things, don't we? We have to change it. And so if we can do that for 21st century Europe, then we we should be able to do the same for the world beyond Europe.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for the support on Palestine Action, by the way. And yeah, of course, that just stems from the fact that it's just a bunch of people in Britain who want to end Britain's complicity in supplying Israel with weapons of destruction. It's that simple. So we go out and we smash them fucking weapons factories to fucking pieces. I personally have smashed up fucking drones, stopped them from going out and inhibited the factory from fucking functioning for three weeks. I've got a court hearing coming up for it on the 23rd of September. So we're going to see what happens there. But in any case, this isn't like nothing but a privilege for me. It's a privilege to say a Palestinian action in the same way. It's a privilege for me to have grown up with access to drinkable tap water on hand, you know, foods that were available, you know, shelter, not having drones like buzzing overhead that had fucking killed me fucking brothers or me fucking family or neighbours or, you know, you know, people down the streets because that's how the fucking Palestinians live. It's a privilege to say Palestine action and no matter what happens with the court case, it's probably unlikely I'm going to face any jail time, but at the same time, it's a small, small fucking price to pay for the privilege that I've had. I couldn't, like, I mean, I've got a son there. Like, imagine having revolutionary lump radio saying all these things and then my son grows up Listens to it back and sees me not even doing anything about it, you know what I mean? I've served the people locally, I want to serve them, I need more support to keep doing it. And I've served people internationally where I can with Palestine action. If people were willing to fucking take up arms and have a guerrilla war against the state, I'd be fucking there, but nobody's game, you know what I mean? When everybody is, I'll fucking be one of the fucking first people. But it doesn't look like it's going to happen anytime soon because people, yeah, focusing on petty fucking issues, you know, for how i money mean, not even going to go into it. But yeah, well said, comrade.
1: Yeah, you know, vice versa to you as well. Like, I think um, what, what you said reminded me of that quote from Marx. It says, the philosophers have thought about the world or theorized about the world. It's now time to change it, right? Or something along those lines. That's what came
0: came to mind for me, because, yeah. E.P. Newton said the exact same thing when he said power is the ability to define a phenomenon and make it act in the desired manner. And that's it. We know these things. We know these conditions. We know these days. We know the nature of the state and fascism and how it operates. And we have the power to change these things. And that means direct action. It means actually fucking doing shit. So if you're not going to do that, support both of us, Because we're fucking telling everybody else to do that. The bigger end of a platform we get, the more people we can do to do that. And I'm telling you, we'll fucking change the world with enough people listening. Because there's enough people just spreading a load of fucking useless bullshit.
1: Definitely, definitely. Another quote by Fred Hampton on that, actually. Theory is cool, but theory without practice ain't shit. I feel like that sums up what's just been said. Like, there's no point of us learning and speaking if we're, if we're not doing anything about it, right? Like if we're, not, if we're not changing anything. And At the end of the day, thoughts aren't going to liberate people, are they?
0: No. Nope. So you can share that meme about all the fucking land being taken out of Africa and Latin America and then a big pile of it ending on the American and European continents, but that doesn't actually combat imperialism. hmm Oh, yeah. As people probably remember, like an hour ago in the past, I mentioned that I saw one of your tweets about the fight of Europe's Marxist against bourgeois structures and class exploitation, and then black Marxist additional struggles against white Marxism in a way. Well, after seeing it, I think I said to you, like, I'm going to start reading black Marxism, and this is interesting. I think that you said that you actually got that quote from black Marxism book, which actually was really fucking interesting. So question from that. As you're reading Black Marxism, could you share with me and our listeners any particular passage or part of that book that stood out to you the most so far and why people should focus on that?
1: Yeah, definitely. Just to clarify, I was paraphrasing with that quote. But yeah, it's a big take I got from it. And I'd say I would recommend part three, part three of the book, which I believe is... Chapters eight, nine, yeah, eight, nine, ten, and eleven, which is about, yeah, I guess uh, it's over a hundred pages. To be fair, I, I think it's hard to, it's hard to narrow narrow it down to particular quotes. But I, the reason why I recommend part three is because it really taught me another way of of understanding history, and particularly black history. It really instilled within me the understanding that for for many black intellectuals, they were forged and formed by the black masses, right? Rather than seeing the masses as, as being like an object that has like the socialist understandings or the theories of intellectuals instilled within them, right? Rather than seeing them that way. Instead, we should understand when it comes to black intellectuals, at least the masses form the intellectuals, the masses teach the intellectuals, the masses create them and shape them, right? And make them. And without without the masses, the intellectuals are nothing, right? And he gives us examples of W.E.B. Du Bois in Chapter 9, C.L.R. James Chapter 10, Richard Wright in Chapter 11, you know, just going through their life, their lives, and their, their intellectual formation, right? Like how their opinions developed and changed. And, I, I, you know, from my understanding at least, we see that in these Black intellectuals, they all started out as first people who rebelled against the lies of, of empire, Right. The way in which imperialism says that non-white people are backward, savage, subhuman, this and that. We have no history, right? We've heard that a lot. I think Hegel even says that Africa has no history. And Oxford professor of modern history, Hugh Trevor Roper, famously said that, again, Africa has no history. The only history there is the history of Europeans, and the rest is darkness, right? This lie, this imperial lie that, that was created in the superstructure t- to justify empire and its vile exploitation. This was combated by black intellectuals or black petty bourgeois people like Du Bois and like of James, who they learned about these lies in school and they were like, I guess they realized, like, well, no, it's just not true. You know, like black people aren't, we're not fucking savage. You know, we're not dumb. We're not subhuman. We're not backwards. We're not traditional. We're not, we're not all of these things. So first they started off by tackling these imperial lies. And then often they saw inadequacies in liberal ideologies that sort to tackle these lies, right? Like we see that a lot of non-white intellectuals or non-white petty bourgeois people have joined people like the Liberal Democrats. I believe the Liberal Democrats are actually in the UK the first political party to have a non-white member, right? So so we see that a lot of non-white people will join these liberal sort of, I don't want to say counter-hegemonic, because we know that liberalism is just the nicer side of Bourgeois dictatorship, right? But yeah, like these non-right intellectuals would, would join these liberal organizations. But then the black intellectuals engaged with by Robinson and black Marxism, they saw that this liberal counter-ideology is inefficient and this is also imperialist, right? It changes nothing. And so they would then turn towards Marxism, right? Because Marxism is, and is explicitly right, anti-bourgeois dictatorship, anti-establishment, anti-this establishment. And that was appealing right, to these intellectuals. That was appealing to them for obvious reasons. But then over time, they realized that actually the Marxism of Europe is just like the liberalism of Europe, right? It seems to be like this radical alternative option that promises to liberate us and our people, but it isn't. It's just perpetuating it, right? It's just a, a nicer face to it. And you know, in the book, there's an example of it, actually, when I forget the exact page. I believe it's towards the end of chapter eight or maybe end of chapter nine, but they, no, end of chapter eight, yeah, they they quote, uh, Robinson quotes Aimé Césaire in his 1956 resignation from the French Communist Party. Césaire resigned from the Communist Party for all the reasons we've outlined in this episode, right? That they are Marxists who are blind to the plight of non-white working class peoples in the French Empire. Aimé Césaire coming from Martinique, where, you know, the Communist Party had a strong presence, right? And again, this is because they had that promise of liberating them. But then, if you look at the policies of the French Communist Party throughout the 50s, you see that these are policies that weren't going to change empire, right? They weren't going to change, they weren't going to radically change the racial exploitation of France's non-white working-class subjects. And so he resigned from the Communist Party for that reason. And Césaire's pro- protégé, François-Anon, he inherits some of these understandings right he inherits these understandings that theories and ideologies formed in Europe only serve europe right and that's why he's critical of Freud and 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 the application of psychology of European psychology onto non europeans and i believe he even says that we you know we we need our own psychology we need our own psychological theories to uniquely diagnose and understand our unique minds right the point i'm making here is that Part three of black Marxism really taught me those two things, right? One, that theory is developed amongst the people, not the other way around. And two, the theories and ideologies and understandings and organizations of Europe will serve Europe and often Europe alone. And, you know, we we need our own ideologies. We need our own theories. We need, or in the case of Mao's China, our own theoretical innovations on, on what's already out there. I think that Marxism at its core, scientific socialism, you know, dialectics, these are all really great tools, right? Tools to understand the basics of reality, to understand our like, economic position, our, our condition. But as Césaire says, you know, Marx is great, but we need to complete Marx because, you know, for the world outside of Europe, Marxism is inefficient. It, it's not complete. It's insufficient. On its own, it will not help us liberate ourselves totally and that's what we want total liberation and just to clarify this is total liberation not just for ourselves but all of humanity because if you truly believe in total liberation you have to be a revolutionary humanist you have to want liberation for all peoples on our planet no matter what you look like no matter who you are you know we we want that total liberation and i feel like part three of black marxism really helped me understand one way to get or one path to get there which is to focus on theory forged in and among the masses rather than theories developed by intellectuals who just do intellectual masturbation with each other, <laughs> unless we real, all right, like in the academy <laughs> hey,
0: yeah, the new three.
1: <laughs> on, on Twitter, right? Yeah, that, that's exactly that. Like, yeah, it, it really, it really instilled that within me, you know, like appreciating the fact that the masses teach us, not us teaching the masses. We are the masses. We need to, you know, stay in the masses. We need to not use theories to elevate ourselves amongst, above the masses because how, how is that liberation, right? That's just making ourselves feel better.
0: Yeah, again, extremely well said. Thank you for that. It's going to get, help give a lot of context for people when it comes to that chapter. My book here has got my little blood on it around the pages and some paint as well. And when I hit an Albert factory, he brought it with me for when I was going to get slammed. Oh man. <laughs> it looks gnarly, you know. Um, but this is going to be one of the most important books in my life so far, I can tell. Definitely. 436 pages with the index and the text is so small, it's not even fair. <laughs> i chose show up to 600 pages with normal font size.
1: Yeah, definitely. It, it's a beefy book. It's a beefy book, but it's so worth it. It
0: is. Yeah, it covers a lot of neglected stuff, I'm sure. If we all knew, we'd all be making a lot more informed decisions because that's all we want to do to build the world that we need. But if we're not getting the right information, we're not going to get to the right destination, are we? Definitely.
1: Yeah, 100%.
0: I'd love to follow up and speak again after i've went through the book and i've maybe got a few more questions that we could bring out together that would be great if you'd be up for it
1: definitely definitely it's been great today thank you so much for having me and i I definitely look forward to that as well you know that
0: i'm looking forward to it awesome thank you so where can people find you follow and support Where? Oh, I've just fucked it up. <laughs> Can we get any final thoughts and then plugs here, please?
1: Definitely. So, uh, at Afropropaganda is, is my handle on most social media sites. A-F-R-O and then propaganda, P-R-O-P-A-G-A-N-D-A. And that's my Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, TikTok even, where I just put quotes there with sound, with like the text-to-speech. Just to make them a bit more accessible. And, you know, if you go on my Twitter or my Instagram, they have a, a link tree in my bio, which will link you to every single one of my social media accounts. So that that should all be there. Um, if you want to follow the Tory parody account, it's Malachi Deco. That's Deco is spelled D E D E A U X. And yeah, that's, uh, that's where you can find me.
0: Awesome. Thank you. We'll include your link tree in the show notes. And I do encourage everybody to go on follow and support you in the future and all of your endeavours. So for now and for everybody else, workers and lumpen of the world unite. Ladies and
2: gentlemen, brothers and sisters, the Black Panther Party very proudly presents... Your legacy will never be forgotten. We will remember